Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be chatting with Sterling Trap King Davis, who is a cat rescuer, a master communicator, a vegan, and an animal rights proponent. Well, I can see why you got this interview and why you chose him. Well, without criticizing any interview we've ever done, I think this might be my favorite interview ever. What a charmer total charmer. Mm. And you know, he's, he he loves cats. Like what's better yeah. than that? And he's just kind of carved out this life for himself. He's invented himself in a way that is, you know, unique and passionate and funny. And I just love this interview. Yes, that is so cool. And also, I, I hate to say it, but you don't come across a whole lot of cat rescuers who are vegan, or at least not as many as you would want to, which would be all of them. We talk about that. So last week, we chatted a bit about my tattoos (laughs) and uh, the idea of appropriation or misappropriation. And I appreciate the comments I received. Uh, One of my favorite tattoos is this one on my arm, and I call it my ratu because it's a tattoo of a rat, my ratu. And it's so cute. He's spray painting animal liberation on the subway wall, and he's wearing an I Love New York uh, shirt. And I got it when I was living in LA, and I missed New York so much. But, uh, you know, rats are so friggin' smart, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this article that was just in the New York Times, which is called, Is There an Ethical Way to Kill Rats? Should We Even Ask? And, and then the subhead is, Welcome to the Rat Trapper's Dilemma. So what did you think of this piece? I thought it was kind of amazing. I mean, it certainly didn't have answers. But the fact that it asked this question, I just don't think I've ever seen anything outside the animal rights movement that questioned the whole killing of rats and, you know, whether there were ethical issues involved, whether rats matter in any way whatsoever. This article actually went there. I mean, it certainly was not saying we shouldn't kill rats. And I, you know, personally think that rats, they're one of the hard questions in animal rights. There aren't a lot of hard questions, but, you know, rats and other kinds of of animals who who reproduce a lot and and get into your homes and, and businesses and subways and everywhere else. Yeah, I'm not sure what we should do with them. Uh, and, you know, the, the article pointed out that we invented rats, well, in a way, but rats evolved because we are filthy and we have garbage everywhere. And, and so they evolved, you know, in, in that context. So humans and rats have, have co-evolved. You know, it interviewed a lot of quote unquote exterminators. I don't know why I put quotes around that. It's just such a creepy word. They are exterminators. And some of them, you know, pretend, you know, kind of pretending to be sympathetic. Others maybe were. But it also quoted a lot of scientists who were talking about, yeah, rats are really smart. They're really emotional. They're really altruistic. They're really, into, you know, if anybody's ever known rats and, you know, people who keep rats as pets can attest to this, they're really amazing animals. And, and the fact that we kill them in these horrific ways by the gazillions is, is disturbing. The one thing the, the article didn't address, and, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but, you know, I know there has been research on, on birth control for rats. I think there was a lot of research being done in China. I don't know what's come of that. And that would certainly be one way to deal with uh, dealing with rat populations. Because in any in any wildlife issue where wildlife is, you know, quote unquote, overpopulated, 
killing them generally doesn't answer much because you just create a space and rats can reproduce incredibly quickly and they just end up filling the space. But if you if you use birth control, I mean, at least this is the philosophy behind feral cat control. If you use birth control, then then you don't create a space. Those The cats who are no longer reproducing are still in the space, so they're not replaced. So I, it seems like a better way to deal with the whole situation than just killing them and killing them and killing them. But at least this article is talking about maybe there are ways to kill them that's not quite so horrifying. Was, I thought it was fascinating that this article existed. Well, obviously, I don't want them to be killed, but I understand that there's a problem and I don't know the solution, but I also don't want them to be killed. So I just want to be on the record saying that when I go to New York, where obviously we both lived forever, and I look on the subway tracks and I see the rats, I am like the happiest person in in the world. When they're on the tracks, I don't want them on the platform with me. But when they're on the tracks and they're like playing around and being funny and being cute, I feel like how lucky am I to have this sort of like ethical zoo, this like urban wildlife opportunity to be observing. They are so smart. I don't know. I know that you get freaked out by mice. Don't you get freaked out by rats? I only get freaked out when they're in the house. I, I, you know, like it's a weird thing that I have that I've inherited. I swear I've inherited. I have, I I rationally completely understand that they are A, harmless. B, of course, they all deserve to have warmth and food. I'm not sure rats are are harmless, to be honest. But I think you're talking about mice. mice. Yeah, Yeah, like I totally get it rationally. And when I see one in the house, which I always have at every single place I've lived at, mostly because I've mostly lived in the city. We also had them here in Rochester recently, which is also in the city. So maybe that's why I start to black out and like get like get really nauseous. Like it's a physical reaction. It's really weird. And I've done serious work on this, but I have a very strong phobia yeah, well, it's a phobia. It's yeah, so bizarre. I think the one thing that that talking about emotional reactions, the one thing that this article, I didn't, you know, I didn't say it straight out, but but one of my takeaways, which I think is hugely important, is we don't get to hate them. No, you don't get to hate them. Maybe you get to kill them. I don't know. It depends on the situation. There's not. We can't say there's there's no situation in which it's ever necessary to kill animals. I don't think it's possible to say that. But no, you don't get to hate them. And that's what people do when they when they want to kill an animal, they decide to hate that animal. And no, can't do it. Okay. Not allowed. We'll link to this in our show notes as always. So let's talk about something wonderful and fabulous. This article that you found in The Guardian, Rainbow Plates, The Chef's Reawakening Africa's Taste for Vegan Food. And we had a cool conversation about this in our henhouse's Mighty Networks. So definitely join that if you haven't yet. Uh, it's just ourhenhouse.mn.co or download the Mighty Networks app. But this was such a great article. And I just want to warn you that as soon as you open it, you'll be very hungry. Yeah, this is amazing picture. Well, it has a lot of great pictures, but the, the picture that it starts off with, I guess it's Ethiopian food. Maybe there are other African cuisines that, that look similar to Ethiopian food, but um, I can't look at it. It makes me want to go eat. Yeah, it's just a great article. It's talking about all of these chefs and, and you know, communicators and media people in um, various parts of Africa who are spreading veganism. And the food all looks amazing. And And the most exciting thing is that three of them, of the people featured in here, have actually been on our hen house already. And I just couldn't be more excited. I love, I love hearing. With each of these interviews, I think... Two of them were done by me and one of them was done by you. Like, 
one of the topics of conversation is always about traditional diets and colonial diets and how colonialism introduced uh, meat-heavy diets to Africa. And that's not the traditional diet. And traditional diets in, in Africa, they haven't been vegan. I'm not saying people have always been vegan, but, you know, they have been very, very plant-heavy in most parts of Africa. So, such a cool article. I just love the love seeing all these people who we've interviewed, but we didn't get to see in person, just on TV, and really, really so exciting. So the the people uh, that it featured that we um, that we have interviewed are Chef Cola, and that's her her professional name. Her real name is Nicola Kagoro, and uh, she's in Zimbabwe, and she was on. Episode 575, also Hakim Jimo, who you interviewed and is starting a food company with the kind of food that you can that you can make quickly and people can use in their homes. And that's on episode 582. And just very recently, my interview with um, Nabasa Innocent Kashubira on 677. So we're going to hear, be hearing a lot more from these people. I can guarantee it. Right. And hopefully we can get whoever else was mentioned in the article on yeah. so yeah vicky, vicky great... if you're listening to this add them to the list we just we we figured out the other day that we have 400 people on the list of people that we haven't gotten to yet which is like i i think that's amazing and like so overwhelming that my head is gonna explode uh all right let's talk about someone who we have had on the podcast before and also going back to my tattoos when our dear friend sherry Kolb passed away or, uh, last year. I got a tattoo of a sherry glass. Well, actually two sherry glasses clinking because my grandma's name was Sherry. And I just like to imagine Sherry Kolb and my grandma somewhere, it, even though I'm atheist, I like to imagine them in some mystical land, like clinking sherry glasses. And it just makes me think of them. But uh, so let's talk about abortion because that's something Sherry talked about quite often. Well, I'll introduce you to why I'm talking about this particular article written by, yeah, the the unbelievably smart and erudite and passionate Cherry Kolb, who I miss every day. I wanted to feature one of her articles in my class this year. So I asked her husband, Professor Michael Dorff, for a suggestion. And the suggestion he made surprised me. And it is this um, this article that she wrote in the Connecticut Law Review, you know, maybe five or six years ago, never having loved it all, an overlooked interest that grounds the abortion right. Of course, this was before Dobbs, so the abortion right wasn't, you know, obviously at risk at the, at the time. Of course, now the abortion right kind of doesn't exist anymore at the constitutional level. But what she wrote this article about was that the standard rights or interests that are protected by or were protected then by the abortion right were uh, the, the interest in bodily integrity, uh, you know, that women get to control their own bodies. And also a, a secondary interest that is mentioned is the, the interest in, in not bearing children that you don't want, you know, which is a, an important interest for people. She talks about some of the criticisms that were offered, she didn't necessarily share them, but the, for these for these particular interests, so the bodily integrity uh, may have been accepted, but it was, you know, it was seen by many people, particularly on the right. It's kind of a selfish thing. Like, you know, you're just worried about yourself. It's a kind of a libertarian kind of uh, concept. I have my body and no, you know, nobody can touch it. And and the the right to not bear children that you don't want you know, can kind of uh, be addressed. I mean, the, her article is much more complex by this, but uh, 
can sort of be addressed by the idea, well, just put them up for adoption, uh, which now we've seen in Supreme Court uh, parlance uh, that, you know, that's a solution to everything. And she was saying there's a third right or interest that, that hasn't been addressed that exists. And I think that becomes particularly important now that the other two uh, interests have been kind of rejected by the court. And that is the right to never have loved at all. She's, of course, referring to the um, to the Tennyson poem, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And she's saying that's not always right. In in some situations, that might be right. But if the if if the love doesn't bring you anything, then you have a right uh, or an interest in not having had that love. If it brought you no joy, no pleasure, no, you know, the, the poem kind of assumes that that the love was wonderful. And so even though you've lost it, it gave you a lot. Well, she says, what if what if it's love that doesn't give you anything? What if it's love that doesn't give you anything? And and so uh, she's arguing that this isn't true of all women. She's not saying it's true of all women. But for a lot of women, they fall in love with their, and, you know, it seems like it's true of a lot. They fall in love with their, their children even before they're born. And they have very, very strong attachments to those children. And, and once they're born, it's very, very hard for them to give up. And she's also saying that that this doesn't necessarily happen at conception. It happens later. Some, I mean, the, the, the point she suggests is when the fetus becomes sentient, you know, or, you know, the, the old fashioned language is when the fetus quick, quickens and pe- women can feel them in the womb. You know, that may not be true with everybody. Certain people, it might happen at the moment of conception, but this is a pretty common phenomenon. And she's suggesting that women, before they have formed that attachment, have a right to end that pregnancy. Um, in order to avoid the deep emotional connection that is going to grow between her and her unborn child that she will then have to give up because she is not in a position to raise a child. All right, you're, mm. you're wondering, like, has the entire subject of our hen house shifted to abortion? <laughs> no, because then in the middle of this article, she goes into this long explanation of an example of how tragic this loss can be by referring to what happens to dairy cows. Like people reading this article are not reading this because they're interested in dairy cows necessarily. I mean, the whole thing is one of the most moving and deep descriptions of what happens to dairy cows. And I mean, I particularly love Sherry's writing because it's not it's not effusive or romantic. It's very, very down to earth. And it's very, very logical. It just leads you from one point to the other so inevitably that you're just caught up in what she has to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, a little excerpt of her description of what happens to cows and why it is a good analogy to what happens to women who are forced to bear animals whom they, they are going to have to give up. A cow in this situation, she's talking about obviously being forced to to become pregnant and um, bear a child, suffers and then give up the child. A cow in this situation suffers a terrible harm, and it is the harm of having a loved one ripped from her side. To highlight how devastating this harm truly is, and the extent to which cows understand the profound harm that is being done, consider the story of a large animal veterinarian who graduated from Cordell Veterinary School. The veterinarian told of a farmer who called her with a mysterious situation on his hands. One of the farmer's cows had recently given birth. When the cow returned to the barn after giving birth on her own in the field, this was obviously, uh, you know, a more benign situation than a lot of cows live in. 
Anyway, I digress. The farmer took her calf away, a practice that is an inherent feature of dairy farming, as explained above. Notwithstanding his taking away the calf, the cow kept returning from grazing each day without any milk in her udders. She seemed otherwise healthy, and the farmer could not figure out why she was not producing the commodity that he had bred and impregnated her to produce. The veterinarian was also perplexed. After some investigation, the answer emerged. When the cow gave birth in the field, she had had twins. Evidently remembering that the farmer took away her babies in past birth cycles, the cow hid one of the calves and returned to the farmer with only one. Just as it occurred several times before, the farmer took her calf away. When the cow went out to graze, though, she visited her remaining hidden calf and nursed him with all of the milk that she had. Upon learning this, the veterinarian begged the farmer to extend mercy to the cow and permit her to keep her last calf. The farmer, however, declined to do so. Farmers are not in the business of protecting the interest of female animals and staying with their babies. They are in the business of separating mothers and babies so that other humans who express their demand for dairy at restaurants, farmers markets, and grocery stores can dine on the calves' baby food, while the calves, if male, become veal, or if female, are induced into the same life of forced insemination followed by separation from their babies and ultimately of slaughter when her milk production slows. Oh my gosh. What a story. Just get that shit in there. Get get it in there whenever we can. And that is a way to honor Sherry's legacy. Yeah. She's just brilliant. Like such a phenomenal thinker and writer. Nobody else exactly was able to do what she did. Just, you know, in this incredibly logical step-by-step way. It's not philosophy. <laughs> it's just telling you this is what happens. This is what happens. All right. Well, let's get to the interview and we will link to all of that in the show notes, but let's, let's chat with Trap King. So Sterling Trap King Davis is a well-traveled ex-military music and cat enthusiast. In 2017, he started his own nonprofit, Trap King Humane Cat Solutions, where he focuses on educating, assisting, speaking, and doing TNR and community cat management. Davis's mission is to change the stereotypes of men in cat rescue and also bridge the gap in communication between Black communities and predominantly white animal welfare organizations. He has made several national television appearances and was featured in the Netflix documentary Cat People. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Socrates once said, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. As you probably gathered from the opening quote, change is in the air. I've got big, gigantic, enormous, gargantuan news. Here at our hen house, we have been working behind the scenes for a while on a brand new community resource, and we couldn't be more thrilled to announce that it is now live. The Our Hen House community is a new online platform that will enable vegans and activists to connect with one another on our own dedicated social network. No more random social media ads, spam comments telling you about a miracle cure, or worry about your data being used in nefarious ways. Just an amazing community of change makers at your fingertips. We're really looking forward to having you by our side to grow this amazing networking platform into a -a one-of-a-kind movement resource that we truly believe will be an epic tool in our work to change the world for animals. Head on over to ourhenhouse.mn.co to join us. Again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. 
We can't wait to connect with you. We'll see you there. Welcome to our hen house, Sterling. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. You have such an interesting story. The work you're doing is so powerful. I can't wait to get into it. But let's start, well, not quite at the beginning, but at the beginning of Trap King. Can you tell us how Trap King started? And my understanding is that you went from being a rapper to being a cat rescuer, which is not the normal trajectory in most people's lives. So so tell us about that. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely not the norm. But I've been doing music my whole life, rap, entertainment, acting. I've just been in a entertainment space my whole life. So I never even knew anything about rescue. I was actually just in between tours looking for something to do. And because I had cats and I love cats, I had a cat at the time named Rick James. I saw an ad in Craigslist just looking for something to do in between tours. And I found a rescue, a shelter looking for cat help. That's literally how I fell into it. I was looking for something to do in between music tours and saw that there wasn't a lot of people like me involved. So they wanted me to stay. And at first I was, like I said, I wasn't convinced at first because again, it's not something that I was normally into or knew about as far as cat rescue. Again, I'm a music guy. So, but. So you got started with them, but now Trap King exists. So tell us, continue the story. You're working for a cat rescue. It's kind of temporary, but you know, they want you to stay. So apparently you do. All right. How did you end up founding your own organization? (laughs) You've left too much out of this story. Right. So, so really when I came on board, I was like, okay, let me stay. Cause I, I saw that there wasn't a lot of people like me, a lot of black men into cats and they wanted me to stay for that. They felt like I would help spread that message. So I was on board with that. I ended up staying, but eventually I saw that that was my niche. That was my focus was diversity, cats. And this was a huge organization. They dealt with dogs and everything. So eventually I went on my own to focus more so on underserved communities and cats. Because of course, like I said, the whole rescue to shelter, there's dogs, birds, cats, everything. So I wanted to focus more so on what I was doing. I was starting to make a lot of noise doing what I was doing. So I was like, maybe I should just do my thing. So it's so cool. And I really want to get into what you said about there are too few people who look like you in this world. But I I want a little bit more of the story of what Trap King does before we get into that. What do you do? Like who hires you? Who engages your services? How do you know where to go? Who pays you? How do you survive? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad you asked that. So TNR. So what I do is, is I say cat rescue, but it's trap, neuter and return. It's called TNR. So this is the humane alternative for death or euthanasia for stray and feral cats. So a lot of people, apartment complexes, anywhere where there's cat overpopulation or cat colonies that people will call me to manage the population. TNR is the process where I go out, I catch cats in humane traps, I get them spayed, neutered, vaccinated, and I return them back to their colony. And this prevents overpopulation and spread diseases. Um, In cases where the cats are friendly and I can socialize them, then they're adopted out. And I work with a lot of fosters to socialize cats as well, too. But for the ones that want to be outside, it's pretty much humane population control for them. So when you come in, 
Is it? Gen- I mean, this is what I've heard of, of other people who do TNR. There's generally already people in the area who are feeding the cats. There may be a colony that's kind of already existing. They're just not being spayed and neutered. So the population gets out of control. Is that the case for you? And do you leave that colony with those people to care for them? Yeah. And a lot of times it's education for those people, because the thing is, is you have a lot of people where it's, it's like you said, they just feed the cats. They come out and they throw some food out. And they feed the cats in the neighborhood. They feel like they're helping the cats. But without a proper TNR program, without fixing those cats and feeding them the right way, it's kind of hurting them more than helping them. So a lot of times it's educational. I'll go out, I'll show people how to use the traps, how to do it, and how to feed properly. Because just throwing the food out, that can be dangerous for the cats. Yeah, it's dangerous, but people are trying to do the right They They care about the cats. They want to help them. So, so. Yeah, I think it. I mean, it's amazing to to be able to go out there and help them do a little better job at what they already want to do. Because sounds like the people you're working with mostly care about the cats. They're just not sure oh, how to yeah. deal with it. Oh yeah, they definitely. I mean, and that's the good part about it. I do deal with more people that care and probably yeah. just want to do it the right way versus people that's just like, oh, I don't like cats. Get them out of here. Although I do deal with a lot of those too. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there are a lot of them around. So, who does your spaying and neutering? I mean, I, I should clarify, though. I guess I said this in your bio. This is all in and around Atlanta, right? Well, it started. That's where I started in Atlanta. I've traveled some everywhere now. <laughs> a part that I probably left out that maybe I should uh, <laughs> give you of this story of mine is that I, when I started my nonprofit, because I couldn't afford rent and cat surgeries at the same time, I lived out of my vehicle. So I actually been living out of a conversion van, which recently upgraded to an RV. So <laughs> what started in Atlanta is, has ended up taking me all over the country. Uh, so you've, been doing, you've been doing this kind of work all over the country? I didn't realize that. That's very oh, cool. Yeah. 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 And you get in touch with local humane societies. Is that, that who helps you do the spaying and neutering? Yeah. Any local rescue, local vets. One of the things that I promote is same team. A lot of people in animal rescue and welfare working together. So I try to work with any and everybody in different cities. So I'll reach out to different vets, different clinics, let them know I'm in town, let them know that I'm going to have some cats and use my platform to help highlight them and highlight other people that's doing it as well. This is like, like the cool, you have the coolest life I've ever heard of. Uh <laughs> unbelievable that you've managed to put this together. Now, you lit you you live to the extent that you live someplace when you're not traveling. You live in Atlanta, is that right? You actually don't live in a van anymore. Well, I actually live in my RV. <laughs> oh, you do. Oh, you do. Yeah, okay. I actually do. I up, I've upgraded to an RV. So, right now I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. I do a lot of work in between North Carolina, Atlanta, and Florida. So, I spend the majority of my time, if I'm not on the go, in Atlanta or Asheville. Wow. It's really crazy. I guess the RV was a huge upgrade. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I, I with my conversion van, when I first started, I literally had to keep a 24-hour gym membership to like Planet Fitness and other places like that so that I could use the restroom, get up and wow. shave. Like I was living out of my vehicle. And it's, it's as crazy as it sounds because everybody, when I tell them, they're like, what? Why would you do that? But again, <laughs> I come from being on music tours. I was in the military. So I'm used to living out of my sea bag. It wasn't 
for me, it wasn't as crazy as it sounds because a lot of people, including my mother, was like, oh, my gosh, Sterling, you, <laughs> you done lost your mind out here. <laughs> yeah, this is probably not every mother's dream for her son. No. <laughs> but you're making it work. Like, that's what's unbelievable about it. You're making it work. Now you're living in an RV. Yeah. yeah. A big um, blue and purple RV with cats all over it. It's just, you won't miss it. And, <laughs> and we should mention that you're not living either in your van or in your RV alone. You have several cats, right? Oh, yeah. I got, well, <laughs> I have Demita Joe, Alanis Muisset, and newly, <laughs> <laughs> newly rescued Nipsey Cuddle. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Demita Joe is the diva. Alanis is the biggest one. She was just actually sitting on my lap. And little oh, yeah, Nipsey. I saw her. I can assure everybody out there she's very beautiful. Yeah, she's what thank you. She's that's my my baby girl. <laughs> All right. You mentioned when that you first got started, you were kind of surprised that almost everybody you were dealing with was a white woman. Not that there's anything wrong with white women. <laughs> no, I'm no, not, not gonna at criticize all. them. <laughs> I know many, including myself. <laughs> and then you made it your mission to kind of change this. I'm going to read a quote, change the stereotypes of not only men in cat rescue, but also bridge the gap in communication between black communities and predominantly white animal welfare organizations. Let's take those two issues separately. I imagine there's a little overlap. But first, I know a lot of men who really love their cats. So I'm not going to deny it. But it is a real issue that men often seem to be programmed to think, well, cats are not for me. You know, I'm a dog person. That whole yeah. thing, dog person, cat person, kind of drives me a little crazy. But, you know. Right. So yeah. what do some men have against this idea of cats? And what's your approach to getting them over that nonsense? Well, the big thing, I think one of the, one of the main things is seeing me, seeing a man that's out doing it. And that is fun. It's cool. But I think the hyper masculinity in it, I knew I know in the black community, the way I grew up, my uncles were always like that. Certain things you couldn't do. It just wasn't you were supposed to be tough. Yeah. Men have a lot of rules. Yeah, so it's a lot of unspoken rules. Yeah. And cats, cats are just so cute and cuddly. I think they kind of fall in that when one of those rules. So I mean, I deal with that a lot. And I think some of the issues with rescue and some issues that I face is that a lot of our ladies don't have help. You had a lot of ladies out here, like you say, like you were saying earlier, middle-aged white women. That's mainly who I hang with when I'm doing TNR. They don't have help from other demographics. There's so many other demographics that's, that could be helping them out that they're missing out on. And that's men, including the black community. So that's one of the things that I try to do is get more men into it. And I think one thing, the first thing is letting people see it because I, I never saw somebody like me growing up. When I was growing up, I liked cats. I felt like I had to keep it a secret. I was a guy. I should have a dog. So I would, I would try to yeah. not publicly put that out. I'm not used to seeing somebody like me. So I want to show first and foremost, show that it's, it's cool. You're all right. Your masculinity isn't going to fall off. If you volunteer, cuddle some cats, it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one of the first things I want to put out there. Yeah. And if, you know, like they are cute and cuddly, but they're also like totally full of themselves and very bold and, and sure of themselves, you know, aspects that, that even somebody who's into like, classical masculinity might admire in an animal like if people right. got to know them better they'd realize they're not just like stuffed animals <laughs> yeah i explained this to some young fellas in the neighborhood that i was uh trapping with i saw that they didn't like the cats and trying to throw rocks at the cats and stuff like that and i explained they saw the movie black panther had come out around the time and i explained to them 
that that cat, as a, a lion, is the king of the jungle. Like it's the it's as tough. It gets no tougher than that. That's as tough as it gets. And it was almost when they put two and two together with that little cat with the lion and the black panther. It was like, <gasps> oh, so cool. you know. Yeah. So it, it it changed the outlook a little bit on that. And I, I love doing stuff like that. Yeah, that is really great. Well, let's talk a little bit more about it, which is the other issue that you mentioned, which kind of overlapping. But this gap in communication between black communities and the predominantly white animal welfare organizations. Like when this first dawned on you, when you first got involved and looked around and saw nobody else who looked like you, what did you find out about what organizations were reaching out and doing that needed to be fixed? Well, the first thing I saw, I was, first it was a shock. I was like, wow. I mean, I'm usually the eyeballing all of my friends anyway, but <laughs> I, but th it was shocking because it was like every night I'm going out and it's just me and the ladies, me and the ladies. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like it's really, and I finally put it out there, asked the question and they, what I, I think what I first had to realize is that there wasn't a wall of middle-aged white women stopping diversity from happening. <laughs> it wasn't that. Like, so that approach, I didn't want to look at it like that. I didn't want to take it like that. The issue is, is just, it wasn't, the message wasn't being relayed a certain way. And I think I help with that message. And, and another thing too, I think the situation with Michael Vick just made it a little bit that much more difficult because yeah. it changed, it, it definitely changed things as far as the animal rescue community and what someone like myself looking like me is is viewed. So I think that kind of made the gap a little wider in certain ways. That's really unfortunate to hear that the actions of one person, and you know, he's not with the only person, but he's certainly, there are people of various backgrounds involved in dogfighting and there are a gazillion people of every every color, every single color who care about animals. And we all have so much more in common with each other in so many ways than we do with the rest of the world. It's just, for you, why is it so important? Not just, it's important that there be inclusivity everywhere for obvious reasons, maybe not so obvious to everyone. <laughs> but why specifically in the animal welfare field? What is the huge gap here? And what is it costing well, the animals in particular? I mean, the... Like you said, it's cost of the animals. That's the biggest thing is I love the animals and you literally have demographics that's not aware at all, that's not participating or aware in this. So I think with more help, we have more ideas that's going to ultimately help the animals. But then two animals like comedy, like music, bring people together. I think with everything that we got going on, something like rescue and volunteering brings people together. I think it can help solve a lot of issues with the world not just cats because i'm rescued to my heart everything i do probably gonna go back to somehow helping some cats but as well like i said diversity and bringing people together i think volunteering and going out a lot of the people that i do rescue with i probably would have never met had it not been for cats and rescue so i think it's a i think it's a good way to bring people together in a lot of different ways not just with that and that's what i'm trying to do when I go out, I want to, I try to make it an experience more so than just educating, like, hey, do this, set the trap. I want people to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, why it's important. And then again, working together. Yeah, it really is a beautiful idea. And I totally agree with you that animals bring people together. There's not much bringing people together these days. 
like to me, that's like the big vision of the world is the animals, like caring about the animals is really a hugely important thing in so many ways. It's caring about life on earth. So you also do a lot of speaking engagements. So tell me about that. Who's your favorite audience and what do you try to get across? Do you talk a lot to kids? I talk to everybody. I talk to kids uh, before the pandemic, actually, which was, th and this, I used to love doing this, even though I don't have children of my own, at least no two legged children. <laughs> my babies have four legs. But, <laughs> but I, uh, before the pandemic, I would visit different schools throughout the country, Boy Scouts and Girl Scout troops, because I feel like they should have a TNR badge as well. A lot of what they do go hand in hand with TNR yeah, and rescue. Absolutely. But I would go out and do presentations and show my cats are trained. My cats are clicker trained. So they ring bells and they would go in the trap and show kids how TNR works, how the trap works. And that was fun. I love speaking with kids like that. Like I said, I don't have any two-legged children of my own. So it's fun to hang around and talk with them. So I've done speaking engagements there, probably at every cat con, cat event, whatever, <laughs> kitty con, cat camp, whatever you could think of. I probably was there speaking about TNR, high-fiving and hugging people and trying to get people to get into cat rescue. So I love speaking. I love, again, showing people something that I never saw growing up. I never saw some cool guy that was hip and was compassionate at the same time. Like, man, that guy's cool. He probably do the same stuff that I do, but he's also very compassionate and he out, he go get his nails done with the cat ladies and they rescue cats and he can still be cool. Like <laughs> I want to, I want everybody to see that. <laughs> and I have to, for those who are listening, since I am able to see, I want to tell everybody, you just held up your two hands and all of your fingernails are painted. It's, is it black? Yeah, this is matte they, black. <laughs> they look fabulous. They look fabulous. All right. So the thing that I'm super excited about, and, you know, for somewhat unfortunate reasons, which we'll get into, is that you're not only a cat rescuer, you're vegan. And that just, like, makes me so happy. Can you tell us? <laughs> can you tell? And, you know, you early on caught on, from what I can tell, to, to the idea that maybe we shouldn't be eating them. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. It, so it was crazy because it had nothing to do with actual diet reasons. I know a lot of people do it for dietary reasons, for yeah. health reasons. Not that that's bad, but I was young. I was like 12 years old and I won a writing contest that got me to work with a magazine called Unlimited Possibilities. I think it was something like that. And I interviewed, I won't say the name of the meat company, but it was a, a meat company that he owned. The story was actually about him surviving, him and his family surviving concentration camps and moving to America and being successful. So it was a, it was a, positive story, but he owned a meat company. And I happened to, while waiting to do the interview with him, I'm walking around this place, being a kid, seeing stuff I shouldn't have saw. And that did it. Even during the interview, I'm trying to, as a kid, I'm trying to focus on the interview because it had nothing to do with animals. This was about a, a man surviving trauma and bringing his family to America and being successful. It had nothing to do with animals, but I just saw all the stuff that I saw and I'm trying to get through this interview with this man as, as a 12-year-old kid. And it was a lot. But I went home that day and told my mom, Mom, I'm, I don't want to eat animals no more. And nobody in my family was vegetarian, vegan, or nothing. She was, you know, my mom was like, boy, you're going to eat what I feed you. And I was like, 
now mom I'm, I, I can't eat animals anymore and like i think after two months maybe she took me to the doctor because she was you but nobody in my family understood that concept that like you don't eat meat you're gonna die you won't get enough protein yeah. so my mom took me to the hospital thought something was wrong but i was i stayed a vegetarian from 12 until 18 when i went to the military and the military was a different experience because you pretty much eat what they give you. So, <laughs> but when I got out of the military, I went back vegetarian and then straight vegan. I love that story so much. I mean, it's a horrible story, like what you were exposed to, but I love, I love how incredibly stubborn you were. As I mentioned, your mother must have put up with a lot. Just oh, saying. yeah. <laughs> I was definitely one. I was, uh, I've always been strong-minded and going my own way, kind of. <laughs> well, you found the right way to go, I have to say. So you're in the rescue world, and I think there are probably more people in the rescue world who are vegan than used to be or who get it on the farm animal issue, but it's still, there's still a big gap. So you being so familiar with that world and how passionately these people care about cats or other animals and and how they devote their lives to them. How do you account for the fact that they don't get it when it comes to eating animals? That's still amazing to me. I have to put I have to compartmentalize and yeah. put it somewhere separate when I'm dealing with people, but it still it still amazes me. Especially now because I, when I started, there was like Boca and Morningstar, and that was it. Like it was, right. <laughs> those were the only things you had. Now they yeah. have crazy stuff. It's so easy to, to do it. So I'm I'm a little baffled by it when I see someone in rescue, but still not vegan, or at least attempting or thinking about it. But like I said, I have in order to do what I do, I have to keep the peace. I can't look at people no. crazy. <laughs> you, we, we all know that that vegan advocacy has to be done carefully and you can't just constantly be spouting it at people or you won't ever be talking to them again. So I totally yeah. understand. It's yeah, I totally understand. But it just always perplexes me so much. These I people never... who are so much better than me in every way, they're like <laughs> devoting their lives to animals. They're like they'll get up in the middle of the night to go save some cat. I had a guy stop me the other day and tell me about ask me about birds because he can. If you look at my RV, you see that I'm TNR and cats. And he asked me about that. And he was telling me that cats are bad for birds and everything. And I told him I was vegan. You know, what I do would, is good for the birds. It's good for the cats. It's humane population control. I want to help all animals. And I asked him, was he vegan? And he told me no. And I was like, wow. Yeah. I couldn't believe yeah. we were having that discussion. <laughs> yeah. Especially bird people. It's like they think chickens aren't even birds. <laughs> right. Like you just get to write them out of the biology or something. Right. Like how did that happen? That's wild. <laughs> now we have talked about how you've always loved cats, but we haven't really talked about how that started. I mean, it was as a, you mentioned that it was as a child. So why did this start? Why were you the person who who found friends in cats instead of in dogs or instead of not in animals at all? How did it come about? I think I've always been the, the oddball, the weird yeah. one. <laughs> so that was one thing. If everybody's doing this, I'll probably do that. But when I was younger, I grew up, the neighborhoods I lived in and grew up in were rough, like crazy. It was the hood. If whatever 
the the ghetto, whatever you want to call it, as as tough as you can think of, it was it was that. So, um, and even in my house, you know, I grew up with abuse and drugs. You know, I didn't want to go inside. I never, I didn't want to come inside. You try to stay outside as late as you can because you don't want to go to the mess that's inside the house. So that had me outside with stray cats a lot. Like I would feed them, and it's crazy how when you little you get in that mode of feeling like you alone or you by yourself and something like cats or just feeding the cats around or playing with them around, you bond with them. It's, it's crazy. I, I remember the song Ben by Michael Jackson. He wrote a oh, song yeah. and it was about his rat friend. Right. And yeah, it was I from mean, a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm like, that was probably my relationships with stray cats because when I didn't want to go in the house, when my mom was doing this and, doing that and the family's doing every type of drug and I don't want to go deal with that abuse in there. I'm outside as late wow. as I can with those cats. Like that was my little safe haven. So, so you save cats, but before you saved cats, they saved you. I'm repaying the favor. I'm, I'm yeah. in debt. <laughs> I'm in debt. Yeah, that's beautiful. Really beautiful. I saw that you started an organization called or Facebook group, I think, called Rescuing the Rescuers. I was very intrigued by it because I think people just don't realize like what cat rescuers sometimes go through. And not just that they love these creatures who are being so mistreated, but like they don't get a lot of respect. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I love this quote from you. I like to teach kids that the crazy cat lady down the street who is feeding all the strays isn't actually so crazy. She's doing what she can to help. And anyone can do the same. And that's so true. But Whatever I'm asked who my heroes are, I always say the cat ladies because, you know, they're out there saving. I mean, there's the occasional hoarder. We're not thinking, talking about them. We're talking about <laughs> the gazillions of legit cat ladies who are just right. going out there saving animals and getting nothing but crap for it, like like just being mistreated for it. And they are heroes because they do it anyway. So, all right, that was a long, a long intro to this question. Tell me about rescuing the rescuers and why it's so needed. Yeah, like you said, the women that taught me going out late and being with them, they the heroes. And I've watched so many of them extend themselves like further than they need to go, like further than they can doing stuff that, like I said, I'm thinking I'm tough. I come from rap, which is pretty a tough industry, but they ain't got nothing on some of these cat ladies that I've seen at three in the morning, take off her shoes and climb a tree to scruff a, a cat that she got to rescue. I mean, she tough. And that's something that I want people to to see. That's that's who I represent. That's who taught me. And I want to make sure I highlight that because it's uh, <laughs> it's big. But rescuing the rescuers is for them. So all of those ladies that I've been outside with late at night that's paying out their own pocket for, to feed multiple colonies. I'm talking about 10 different colonies one person could go to at night. Rescuing the rescuers is for, for all of those people that I've, that's taught me that hit that wall because compassion fatigue and burnout is a real thing. A lot of people don't notice how big it is. And we go in understanding that we're going to see the cats. We go in knowing that we'll see the cats with the eyes popping out or they too skinny or they need help. We know we're going to see that. We know we're going to deal with that. But what we don't prepare or plan for is the the things that we face coming from people that's unaware or uneducated, we, the stuff that we do or don't say to one another at times. Like 
the things that we don't plan for, because we, we know we're going to be hurt and see the animals. We know we're going to deal with that. But some of the compassion, fatigue and burnout that we run into along the way that we didn't have any idea was coming. That's what Rescue and the Rescues is for, because us as humans don't have nine lives. That's the <laughs> that's our slogan thing that we use. But it's just a group. It's no fees or nothing like that. Anybody could join. And it's just a place for people to come and talk, like share good, positive energy. We have counselors there oh. for people that are that are stressed, like professional counselors. I don't I'm not a professional counselor, but we do want to provide any information as far as suicide hotlines. And like I said, counseling for professional counselors for people that need help. And we're good. We're getting started with some um, with some a couple Zoom meetings where we'll be doing different exercises for people that's about to hit that wall or just want to help people that's hitting that wall. Like that's something that I saw a lot when I first got started, as much as I was loving it coming in, a lot of the women that were teaching me were, they were on the edge. They were on their way out. I didn't understand that then, but I understand it now. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it's such brutally hard work and you do get so few rewards about it. That sounds like an incredibly useful tool for people to turn to. In spite of how hard this work is, and in spite of, you know, as you said, you see the cats who are really suffering, and I'm sure you see a lot of them. You seem like a really happy person. I don't know. I don't know you well. So it could be just an act for all I know. But but a lot of animal people get really down. I mean, whether they're cat rescuers or farm animal activists or whatever, it's a bad world out there in so many ways. And, it, you know, as you said, burnout is is a real thing. And Compassion fatigue is a real thing. And aside from that, I mean, even if people don't burn out, they can be leaving really, they can be miserable a lot of the time, which is not a good thing. So not to get too personal, but am I right? Are you, do you basically have like, is it just your nature to have relatively good spirits? and Or what are your secrets that you can share with us to keep your mood up? Or is it I, all know, a lie and you're actually going to get off this interview and cry? I'm, not, I'm totally getting off this interview and boo-hooing right after this. No, <laughs> it's a combination of stuff. I wouldn't say it's just one thing. I, I honestly feel like I was lucky in a way to, to, for one, be around and see something, what I love to do and be able to do it. A lot of people don't get to do what they love. As stressful as this can be, I love it. And that's... That's something that a lot of people don't get to do. So, I mean, that helps, but it's been a process because I didn't know. Like, I would, if you would have asked me before, I thought I was supposed to do music. And then when I was in the military, I would have told you I'm supposed to live a life of service and maybe I might be a politician. I don't know. But when it all came together, it's like I realized that I was performing and doing music and I went to the military. A lot of that stuff was all to bring me here to where I was supposed to be to do this. So it was, it's was it been a process, but one of the things that help is that I love what I'm doing. I'm still performing in a way. I'm reaching people. That was why I wanted to go to the military. I want to live a life of service. I wanted to bring people together. I want to have a positive impact on the world. So I'm doing the stuff that I love. And I think a lot of times in rescue, people they don't get to pat themselves on the back or they don't see the fun part about it. Some people are running from drama and a traumatic situation they own and TNR cat rescue is therapy. Right. So a lot of people don't know that this can be what it is, as fun as it is or, or as rewarding as it is. Because it is, it is tough 
And that's why we got the Rescue and the Rescuers group. But there is a lot to this that is fun, rewarding, therapeutic. I like to tell people the reason why I say Trap King. It's not, I'm not saying, hey, I'm the king of all TNR. I I, I trap more and better than everybody else. I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. Cause like I said, the women that train me, I'm nothing. I'm like, they, I'd have been out crying and they'd be like, tough up, dude, <laughs> get, get it together. So I'm not, but it's, I'm saying king, I'm taking pride in what I do. And I want to, I would, everybody should do that. Everybody that's in cat rescue or animal welfare in any way like that. If you're doing something selfless, you you a queen, you a king. So I'm taking pride in what I do. And that's what we got to get more into. And I think in rescue, we hit that wall because we don't pat ourselves on the back. We don't pat each other on the back. I would my my this is so funny, but one of the great the way it's the rescuers greeting. And my the woman that trained me, Mickey Blair, who's amazing, but she would greet some of her other friends and, and her rescue friends. And it would sound so sad. It would be like Hey, what's going on? Living a dream. <laughs> Living a dream. I got this guy over here. We got a ringworm situation I got to run to. I got anal glands on my hand from last night, but I got to run over here and do this. And it's like, and they would talk and compare negative stories and negative days. And that was how they greet one another. Like, <laughs> I totally hear you. I totally like, hear you. I'm purposely coming in like high five i trapped like 30 cats last night oh my god yes let's go like i want to make it like rock star type fun so even if i am down sometimes i still try to keep that energy and, and i'm lucky like i said i'm lucky a lot of the ladies that train me they don't feel like dancing around on social media trying to get a lot of attention they just on the ground doing the work so I'm lucky to be able to do it in this way, but I think giving yourself a little love and the people, your peers around some love go a long way. Wow. That is so, that is really so powerful. I, I do want you to go into politics. I want you to be president. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared. It's crazy. Now I'm, they might not like me. I might just be like, let's all just hug it out. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Wow. All right. I, that that was very powerful and a great place to end. But I, I can't end because I have one more question to ask you before we go to, to bonus. I saw a video on your social media recently because I was, you know, looking at your social media to prepare for this interview. And it indicated that you are now also the Squirrel King. <laughs> <laughs> and I love squirrels. I really do. I love squirrels. And I assume you do as well. So can you tell me what it means to be the Squirrel King? <laughs> so the Squirrel King, I guess, is somebody I would have to say because for one, I've managed to catch a squirrel miraculously. I have a cat that I rescued named Squirrel because she was in a tree. And because recently, I don't know why, is it everywhere squirrels are more friendly, but it's like I could just feed them now. <laughs> I've been I've been doing that a lot lately. Like they get more friendly. I don't know if it's because I'm out and around animals more and they just more trusting, or is it squirrels are just more brave now? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I well, thought I was just I, the cat guy. No, you're you're apparently branching out. So I'm excited <laughs> to hear that. And I I think you should also be, like I said, the human guy and be president because the world would be a better place. Thank you so much for joining us today. Mm. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Always. Thank you so much. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story this week, it kind of writes itself. Like I, I, I just don't think I have to do a lot more than just read a few excerpts from this. It's from the Viewpoint column by Michelle Miller, who styles herself Farm Babe. Okay, I'm not even going to comment on that. Animal rights activism gaining foothold in courtrooms. Well, that's good news anyway. The title is good news. Boy, our anxiety is rising out there. You know, and she starts out by talking about all the new public demonstrations and protests from animal rights activists. She talks about uh, extremist groups glued themselves to Starbucks countertops. The only person I remember doing that is, of course, our beloved James Cromwell, who's always sticking up for animals. But yeah, it did happen. Chained their wrists to basketball hoops during televised games. Yeah, well, you know, the DXE stuff, uh, that's certainly been happening, but that's not what she's really worried about. She's talking about these radical tactics, and they might seem like the primary danger is out in the open, but the real threat, the thing that she's really worried about is what's happening in courtrooms, the rise of animal law. (laughs) I just love it. I just love it. Uh, And she's talking, of course, about a number of different cases, and we'll get to the DXE case, but, but it's not just that. She's worried about the whole entire thing. And she says that several activist groups even encourage and celebrate these individuals, especially those who are taken into custody as martyrs to their cause. Yeah, I kind of celebrate them. So that's true. The videos that are recorded illegally by activists, they're, they're not, I mean, they want them to be illegal, but they're not always illegal. What they like to call undercover videos. It's, can you imagine? Where did we come up with that title, undercover videos? What could that possibly mean? are nearly always filmed out of context and made to appear sadder and bleaker than reality. Oh, really? Oh, really? It couldn't be any sadder or bleaker than reality. How do you film something out of context? Well, I guess it's possible. And, And then she talks about holy fake videos, such as when PETA depicted a cat being abused in a video. Now, now hold the phone here. <laughs> like, all right, this was this crazy thing that PETA did where they did use a CGI cat and they were laid, they, they put out the video and then they were later going to tell people that it was CGI, but, you know, people found out and they weren't really trying to scam anybody. I can't say it was the smartest thing I've ever heard of uh, because, you know, <laughs> We have to be purer than anybody. But that's what that was. It was never meant to uh, permanently deceive anybody. It was supposed to just, uh, whatever. Like one incident of this weird thing that Peter did. In other cases, she said, the activists have been suspected of instigating on-farm animal abuses to ratchet up the disturbing nature of what was being filmed. Oh, really? Well, we don't have any links for this one. We don't have any... Uh, any <laughs> particulars and they've been suspected of who they've been suspected by you i don't know that they've been suspected by anybody else then they weaponize these videos submitting them as evidence of cruelty or neglect without providing any perspective from the farmer (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, can I interview you about this? Or an understanding of safe modern farming practices. Yeah, I don't think the farmer has any understanding of what's safe and modern either. All right, then she gets to the direct action everywhere case, of course. You know, she just doesn't know how farmers are going to protect themselves about this. She she does appreciate ag-gag laws, but she says they can only protect farms so much. Well, yeah, they can't protect farms at all because they're all being held unconstitutional. Uh, get up to date here, honey. Proper farm security should always be a priority for farmers and ranchers as a means of not only safeguarding their livelihoods, but also protecting their animals from scary biosecurity threats. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of scary threatening these animals. So uh, she's also talking about courtroom animal advocate program. And apparently there's a number of bills pending. I, the only place I know of this for sure is in Connecticut. They're usually, for, as she said, they would provide animals a legal advocate to represent them in criminal cases concerning animal welfare or neglect. This is really interesting that she considers this a threat because I think that, you know, my knowledge of these programs is that they've always been about a companion animal. Nobody's ever been appointed to represent institutionally held animals. But, you know, even with companion animals, she's a little worried about this. She says that your dog, or technically your dog's lawyer, could recommend to the court that you pay for additional rehabilitation or veterinary fees for the rest of that animal's natural life. Well, you know, that's that has been tried. I don't think that's ever succeeded. They're, they're trying that in Justice the Horse in the Justice the Horse case. You know, these these cases are are supposed to represent the interest of the animals in a cruelty prosecution when somebody gets convicted of a crime. God forbid there should be any uh, advocates on part. We have the animals. But, the, you know, the advocate programs are just one way that animal activists are, are taking small steps towards manipulating the law to grant full human rights to animals. Don't you wish that we could actually do that? How the hell? I mean, how the hell am I supposed to do that? I'd be happy to. Some activists are also seeking to restructure the definition of legal personhood by using obscure historical precedents to compel the judicial system. <laughs> Oh, God, I wish I could do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish I could find some obscure historical precedent, even though the law has never recognized the rights of animals. And I wish I could compel the judicial system to do anything. She wants us to, or she's saying we're compelling the judicial system to recognize animals as cognizant. Well, I mean, yeah, they are cognizant and capable of feeling human-like emotion. Well, yeah, they are. I think the judicial system actually already does recognize that. It has for a very long time. There have been cruelty laws on the books since since the 1800s. Uh, she talks about habeas corpus, the Happy the Elephant case. That's horrifying, of course. Extremist tactics, going for media attention and sensationalism in the undercover videos. I wonder where we get the sensationalism in the undercover videos that attracts media attention, even though it doesn't attract nearly enough. She concludes by saying animal rights activism is big business. Yeah, animal agriculture isn't. Oh, my God. Don't let activists fool you into thinking climate-controlled barns, automated milking machines, and customized nutrition plans are bad for animals when they don't even stop to ask before stealing them from farmers. Where do they get this? Like, I just sometimes wonder whether some of these people actually believe the stuff they say. Could they actually be, you know, because people are, it's very easy for people to deceive themselves. Though she claims, I think, to be a farmer herself. I don't know. Speaking of how, how easy it is for people to deceive themselves, 
I thought I'd highlight this article from Sentient Media, our friends over at Sentient Media, who are kind of analyzing or, or talking about an article that is analyzing uh, how we misjudge animal intelligence. And I think this, you know, is part of the whole... Right. I, personally, I have always thought that it's anxiety about these issues that makes people misjudge animal intelligence. But they're delving a little... You know, and I don't think they, they disagree, but they're, the people are, fortunately, delving into this question a little more deeply. Why, why do people underestimate the intelligence of animals, even people who like animals, even people who want to be kind? And, you know, of course, we throw around the, the words cognitive dissonance all the time. But what do we really mean when we talk about that? So this is a study from researchers at the University of Kent. And the authors found that even when they presented people with evidence of animal sentience, study participants didn't quite adjust their perceptions in line with the new information. Um, they, they, they talk about the meat paradox, which is a, you know, a term that's been, been going around for a while about why humans have so much trouble understanding that animals that they eat are being mistreated even when confronted with with evidence. And, you know, 98% of Americans purchase products from the very factory farms they say they disdain. And I'm sure all of you have run into this, that people think factory farming is terrible. They just think it's terrible and they eat meat. And somehow <laughs> that they, they never put those two things together. So the, the study did find that both meat eaters and meat abstainers were able to update their perception of animal sentience when given new information. So it's not... It's not that they don't get anything when they're given information about animals, real information, but they didn't update their previous beliefs consistently or logically. They overcorrected their beliefs in a negative direction and undercorrected them in a positive direction. It's not a complete failure to perceive what's going on here. It's just bias always enters into it. In other words, it says here, if you showed a meat eater information suggesting pigs were sentient, they might be a little bit more likely to believe pigs were sentient. But if you showed them information suggesting the opposite, that pigs weren't sentient, well, they would overcorrect. They'd be far too confident that pigs are dumb as doornails. Yeah, it, it, this does seem right. It really does. There's a suggestion here that we are actually hardwired to reaffirm whatever beliefs we already have about animal intelligence and animal stupidity. I don't think this is just about animals. I think we might be hardwired to continue to believe what we already believe. So, you know, that sets out an additional problem for the animal protection movement and also begs the question of most of us who, who care about animals and who really accept the evidence about sentience of animals didn't always. So what is it that we did that, that not everybody seems to do? Some food for thought for activism. All right, finally, uh, meat is still on my plate. UK Environment Secretary distances herself from veganism. She really looks like a sweetheart. What's her name here? Therese Coffey. And she was speaking during some uh, National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, which was a conference in D.C., and she was there to boost trade agreements between the UK and US. And she said, don't worry, I'm not going all vegan or vegetarian on you. She said, meat is still very much on my dietary plate. Like, did somebody bring it up? Did somebody ask her? Like, is it just that there's word out there that the UK is leaning more toward in a plant-based direction and she felt like she had to stick up for her, her animal abuse industries? 
She also claimed that the agriculture industry included, quote, caring for animals with good levels of animal husbandry, which she said is the right thing to do. So, you know, the bullshit flies, that's for sure. It's not, it's not stopping anytime fast. And, you know, this is what we have to deal with. It's the environment secretary. She's also gotten a lot of um, trouble for other things. She really sounds like a doozy. I don't know. Last October, she was asked about what she was doing personally in her own life to address climate concerns. And she she said she uses permanent cups. Okay. <laughs> That's what she's doing personally to address the climate crisis. She doesn't use um, disposable cups, I guess. Good for her. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 